flip there, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alexia. Good morning, Sunnybrook fam. Everybody doing all right? All right. So, uh, if you got your Bible, you need to be at Matthew chapter 16, okay? Matthew 16 is where we are. Um, my name is Drew Henderson. I get to work with middle school, junior high students, as well as our family ministry team, Jim and Andrea, are in Canada today. So, I get the opportunity to share with you. Um, if you could think about uh, people in culture or people in the world who would confess a belief in Jesus, uh, who would it be that would come to your mind? I was thinking about that this week, and several different people came to my mind. The first, we've got some pictures up here that we're going to show. The first is a man named Kyle Snyder. As Ryan was making my slides this week, I was like, just go for the, just kind of the normal face shot, but instead we got the full-on post win celebration there. Uh, Kyle Snyder is a wrestler, wrestled Ohio State University, uh, was in the 2016 Olympics, was, is also in Tokyo right now. But uh, in the 2018 World Championships, he was pinned. And after he was pinned, he was interviewed, and this is what he says. He says, wins and losses don't define me. I mean, I love wrestling, it's a big part of my life, but I'm not defined by the sport, I'm defined by my faith in Jesus. So it's not just people, even in the athletic world, sometimes even in the world of academia, we have people who confess the name of Jesus. One would be uh, Alan Jacobs. Uh, he's a professor at Baylor University, and he's written a book called How to Think, which challenges people to think critically about some of the different issues that we're facing in our world, rather than just lump people into different categories. Um, Kelly Monroe Kelberg is the woman next to him. She... Uh, was a chaplain at Harvard University for a number of years, wrote a book called Finding God at Harvard, started something called the Veritas Forum, and it was in that forum that uh, she hoped that she could challenge college students and professors to both pursue truth and deal with life's toughest questions and to view that through the lens of faith. Uh, but it's not just athletics or academics. Even in the world of business, we have people like Dan Cathy, um, who confessed Jesus, a belief in Jesus. And he says, I don't think that the Lord has ever spoken to me, but I believe Chick-fil-A is his gift. And to that, I would say amen. Thanks be to God. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Um, it's not just big names either. There would be people in our own local community. We have people who are teachers, people that are professors, uh, engineers, artists, home builders, moms, dads, college students, singles. Many people, whenever we look out into the public square, sometimes it, we think that this number is shrinking, and that may be true, but there are still a large number of people who profess and confess a faith in Jesus Christ and a faith. Now, 
You take that group, but then you move a little bit further and you think about people, uh, just anyone that we would just say walking down the street, what would be a, a normal American's view of who Jesus is? If you were to stop someone and you would ask them the question, who do you confess Jesus to be? That's a great question. A group, a Barna group, uh, did a survey about five or six years ago trying to answer this question. And they found out that there were five key beliefs of just your normal, everyday American person and who they believe Jesus to be and their confession about him. They found, number one, that the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Uh, Number two, however, younger generations were less likely to believe that Jesus was God. Uh, Number three, Americans are divided on whether Jesus is actually sinless. Number four, this is where it begins to get a little muddy here. Americans are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. And then number five, I found this one very interesting. Yet, most Americans agree that they've made a commitment to Jesus. And so whenever uh, we look at this group of people, more of a general group of Americans, when it comes to Jesus, there's a lot less clarity, a lot more confusion. And the more that you dig down, you're going to find that this Jesus that most of these Americans are confessing probably looks a lot more like themselves than the Jesus that were presented in Scripture. And then you, you move a little bit further. You have some people whose confessions about Jesus is, yeah, he, he just doesn't exist. Uh, we've got a picture here, Sir Richard Branson, obviously been made famous in the last few months going into space. And this is what he says he believes. He says, I believe in the importance of humanitarian efforts, but not in the existence of God. He says, I would love to believe, and it's very comforting to believe, yet at the very end, he does not believe in God. And then you have Daniel Radcliffe. He says, I'm an atheist, but I'm very relaxed about it. And he says, I don't preach my atheism. I find that very interesting. Someone that would profess no faith would, would admit to, yes, I can confess that there is no God. I don't preach my atheism, but I have a huge amount of respect for people like Richard Dawkins who do. And so you have generally here, it's not just three groups, but you have three general groups of people. You have people who profess a faith in Jesus and an allegiance to Jesus Christ. You have just kind of your more normal, generic group of people who would conf- uh, confess a, a lot more of an unclear or confused version of who Jesus is. And then you would have those people in a group whose confession of Jesus would be that they would deny him. And I don't want to oversimplify that. Here's just three groups, and it's just these three groups of people, because whenever we begin to think about those groups of people, it's not just groups that exist out there somewhere. Usually it's people that come to our minds, right? It's names. It's friends. It's, it's family members. And I'm not exactly sure really which group you might find yourself in this morning, but I do think that there is one lesson that we can all learn is that no matter what, no matter what, we all confess something about Jesus. We all confess something about Jesus. So the text that we're looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 16. It's that text that's most famously known. It's called uh, the Great Confession, and it's Peter's confession of who Jesus is. And we're in the middle of the series called The Teachings of Jesus, and over the next few weeks specifically, we're going to be looking at, at the teachings of Jesus uh, as they are regarded to the church. 
And um, as we get there this morning, I'm going to sort of give the destination of this sermon first. I know that many of us are still coming off of summer vacation mode, and it's always the question from the kid, where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? It's like, okay, be quiet. I'm going to give you the destination, and then we're going to figure out how we're going to get there. So I'm going to give you the destination, the kind of the big idea, the main thought of this sermon right off the bat, and it's simply this, okay? So whenever it comes to Jesus' teachings on the church, Jesus builds his church with people that confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus builds his church with people that confess Jesus is Lord. If you look in Matthew 16, verse 13, you see Jesus and his disciples going into this region. It's called the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is a non-Jewish region. This is people that don't know, very unfamiliar with this new message, the message of the good news of Jesus, this new kingdom. It's called Caesarea Philippi, after, named after Caesar Augustus. And what we're going to see in this context, it's this new message of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel that's moving out into an unbelieving world, into a, into a world that didn't know much about this kingdom, didn't know much about the, the people from with which this kingdom began. And it's as this message is moving out, Jesus asks two very pointed, two very important questions. The first question is this. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who is it that the world, who is it that the culture, who do, who do the people out there, as we move into this new region, who is it that the people say that the Son of Man is? Question number one. Question number two is a lot more specific. He looks right at his disciples. And then in response to who do the people say that the Son of Man is, Jesus asks his disciples now, who is it that you say that I am? And these are two very, very important questions, not just for a time back then, a time at, in, the, in history at, at one point in time. These two questions are crucial for us as Christians to address today because as Christians, we bring this message of the good news of the gospel, we bring this message confessing Jesus to an unbelieving world that they're going to be very, very unfamiliar to this. And number two, at the very same time, when we think about this, it's not just the world out there. It's just not this unbelieving world that has to deal with the message of the kingdom. Jesus is specifically talking to not only his closest disciples, but I believe to us today in asking that question, who do you say that I am? And all of us, all of us have to deal with that question. Who do we say that Jesus is? And one of the uh, most encouraging moments over the last few months that I've had was at the beginning of the summer. We had uh, several of our college students who were going out on mission across the world. I know that many of them are back. Look forward to the next few weeks as all of our college students get back. But um, we started receiving these, these prayer cards of students that are from Sunnybrook and with the table and partnering with uh, CMF as a ministry organization and going different locations all throughout the world. And we got these prayer cards that had the picture of the student on there, describing where they were going, the country where they're going to be serving, and then just some different points and ways that we could be praying for them. And as we began to get these cards, we took them where we have our, our kitchen table there and where we share our meals together. We have a little bulletin board, and we began to put the cards on there. It was one card, two cards, all, we have seven or eight cards that are up there, and as we're sitting down to eat every night at dinner, I was just humbled and thinking about all of these different students and the message that they are going forth to, to preach and confess 
to this world. I was just humbled of the task that we have and those students that are saying, yes, I want to follow him and I want to go. Yet simultaneously, I begin to think about it. It's not only the message that we go and confess. I need to be thinking about those people that sit around that table with me each and every night and who they confess Jesus to be. And it always begins and it always starts with us. It always starts even with me, with, with all of us personally. And those two questions, as Jesus and the disciples begin to go out, it's like Jesus is asking the disciples, hey, before we go into this, like, this new territory, I need to know right now, who is it that you confess me to be? Those two questions, who is it that they say the Son of Man is, and who is it that you say the Son of Man is, those two questions can't be separated. And it begins with us. It begins with us, the church. Who do we confess Jesus to be? And it's not, not just the church. It's, it's those of us who are, who are closest to one another, individual life groups, people that meet together week after week after week, who we love, who we share life with. Who do we confess Jesus to be? It's directly to families. who Moms and dads, who do we confess Jesus to be? It's our kids. Who do they confess Jesus to be? It always begins with us always begins with us. And so whenever it comes to Jesus' teachings on the church, I think the first important thing that we need to know is that as Christians, we spe- who we specifically confess Jesus to be, it really matters. If you look at verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into that region of Caesarea Philippi, he's asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And Jesus does not use that title on accident, the Son of Man. It was the name that he gave to himself. It gave him all power. It gave him all authority. In fact, this was showing that Jesus was God. And I know in our culture today, it's so easy to say things like, well, this is who I believe Jesus to be, and that is who my friend believes Jesus to be, and this is who my other friends believe Jesus to be, and we all believe sort of in this different Jesus, yet Jesus, from the very beginning here, he levels the playing field with the disciples. He calls himself the son of man. I am God. There was to be no mistaking. If you look at verse 14, in response it says the disciples say, well, some people say that, the, that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And there were different leaders up to this point, even Herod himself in Matthew 14 that thought that that uh, Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people thought that he was Elijah, this one who was to come, this prophet who was to, to lead the way to the Messiah, when in fact it was Jesus Christ who was the Messiah himself. And some people had this understanding. It was like maybe it's like Jeremiah looking back to the prophet, this man who was to say what was to come, this weeping prophet that wept for his own people who died a very similar death to Jesus very best case scenario, there were a, a lot of misunderstandings and lack of clarity as to who Jesus was and his identity. Kind of sounds like our world today. And then Jesus turns the tables back to his disciples. If you look at verse 15, this is who, like, that's who the world thinks I am, but now you. Who do you think I am? Verse 15, but what about you? Who is it that you say that I am? 
and brings in this contrast, like it would make sense that that's who the greater world, that's who the culture would believe me to be. But what about you? Those of you who have walked with me, those of you who have watched me, those of you that saw the miracle, saw what I did, those of you that see me doing the acts that only God himself can do, who do you believe me to be? And Christians, who do we believe Jesus to be? Those people who have grown up, you've been a part of the church your whole life, who do you confess Jesus to be? You did bus ministry in the 1970s. You did puppet ministry in the 1980s. All the guys, shout out to the guys in the 1990s that went to Promise Keepers. And then in the 2000s, we went to Catalyst Conference. And now, like if you go to Right Now Media, we've done all the Bible studies on Right Now. That, those people, all of us who have been following Jesus for quite some time, who is it that we confess him to be? And it wasn't like... No one had confessed anything about Jesus to this point. No one had alluded to who he was. If you just sort of trace this all the way through Matthew, you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he's given that title. He's Christ. If you go back to uh, chapter 2, his identity was like so much that it, dis- it says that it disturbs Herod. You go to chapter 11. John the Baptist in prison, and he's like, okay, I need to know, is this the guy, is he really who he said? Am I in prison? Like, is this, like, all kind of a farce? The demons confessed him, chapter 4 and chapter 8. Chapter 14, the disciples and their response to Jesus walking on, on the water was just truly, this man is the Son of God. So this wasn't new. It was more, more than just a hint or an illusion that Jesus was looking for. He wanted something a lot more formal. As we go into this new area, Caesarea Philippi, I want to know once for all, who is it that you believe me to be? And there is something different, right? There is something distinctly different whenever someone gets in this baptistry, whenever someone is about to die to themselves, bury their old life, and put on Christ, and whenever they repeat those words, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, there is something, there is something so distinct and so special about verbally speaking the name of Jesus and who he is. And so in verse 16, Simon Peter responds back, and he's responding for all the disciples here. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so clearly, Jesus' teaching to the church is that who we confess him to be really matters, especially those people who follow him, who are closest to him. And I think there's a man uh, by the name of A.W. Tozer that, that describes this really well. And I know that at times I've been kind of accused of geeking out over history and different people in history. And so, if you would let me for just a second, I'd like to geek out on this guy, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer um, kind of had the double whammy from the very beginning. He was born, one, in 1919, a pandemic year, and uh, two, he was born in Akron, Ohio. Now, nothing against anyone from Akron, Ohio. My grandparents actually lived there. I probably have a little bit of baggage with that because the two things that you never wanted to hear growing up was Christmas and we're going to Akron, Ohio, okay? 
Not the two things that you want. So, no, so we're going to go on our free day and go to Cleveland. No, we're not going to Cleveland. It's colder in Cleveland. But A.W. Tozer grew up in Akron, Ohio. He was self-educated, ended up writing about 40 books. His most famous book is called The Pursuit of God. And uh, if you, most people say that, I think this is really interesting. Uh, they say he lived a very simple life, and he had seven children. I think that's kind of interesting. Simple life with seven kids. And... Uh, him and his wife, committed, never owned a car, only wanted to travel uh, by bus or by train. And you can seriously Google it. Google A.W. Tozer. In no picture is he smiling, okay? So it's like seven kids and the bus or a train. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but this was A.W. Tozer. But he says something that I think about confession that's important for us and who we believe. He says, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, who we confess Jesus to be, who we confess Jesus to be as Lord, as King, as the Messiah, is the most important thing about us because it defines us, because it marks us, and because of that, it really matters. And it matters because it gives us a, a new identity. It's an identity that it says, if you look at verse 17, it's an identity that brings blessing Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, and it's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Basically, it's this idea. It's not promised happiness all of the time for those people that confess Jesus. Rather, it's this overflow of what God is doing. It's a byproduct of God's work in us as we confess Jesus. And this new identity helps us to understand that it's not human work. It's God's work of changing hearts, and that is something that only he can do. The second half of verse 17, it says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Rather, it was the Father in heaven. It was God himself that was doing the work in Peter that led him to this great confession. And God does the work. And we continually see this time and time and time again in our church. We see God continue to open hearts. God continue to work in the lives of people as they come to a knowledge and come to a confession of who Jesus is. Think about several things just in the last uh, several weeks. Uh, we went to uh, Colorado this year, a high school camp called Youthquake in Colorado. We were not able to go to that in 2020. We were able to go in 2021. Had a great time, and we said all day, it was great to be in the mountains. It was great to be back together. It was great to have our group together. But I think the greatest thing about that week is that over a week long, we had 13 individual students that said yes to Jesus for the first time. I said, yes, I want to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's God's work. And their confession matters because they're marked by a new identity. Uh, just a week ago, we were at something called family camp that we do at, at the end of every summer. And uh, as, as a church and families, we just go to our church camp up in Missouri, spend a weekend together. And one of the highlights of that weekend typically is the worship service on Sunday morning and we're worshiping together and families being together. And a young man that was with his family had been thinking about coming to follow Jesus, coming to confess Jesus. And it was during the worship service that he started talking to his mom and dad. And he saw the bread and the cup and the communion that we were about ready to serve. And he just said to his parents, no, I think it's time. I want to confess Jesus. And so we finished the service. We go to the pool. He's baptized. And he confessed Jesus. And that's God's work. And his confession matters because it marks him with a new identity. 
And it's not just people that are confessing Jesus for the first time. One of the exciting things we have going on in August is that we're starting a class called Be the Church. Every Saturday in August, we're coming together and talking about not only what we believe, but who we confess. And we've talked about this being a a class for new members, but also a new class for old members. And I know people are like, I've been here, I'm a member, why do I need to go to a new class again? I've said yes. And the reason why we're doing this is that we agree with you. We believe that confessing Jesus is a one-time thing. Yet simultaneously, we believe that confessing Jesus and who we confess Jesus to be is something that we need to do over and over and over again. And those confessions continue to matter. But that's only half of it. The second reason why confession matters so much is that our confession matters so much because he builds, Jesus builds his church on people that confess Jesus as Lord. If you look back in verse 18, Jesus says this, and I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, here in verse 18, this is not the first time that Simon is referred to as Peter. It's probably the most famous time, the time that we're most familiar with it. And it's like Jesus is saying back to Peter. He's saying, listen, this is who you confess me to be. You have now acknowledged me as Lord. And now that you have confessed me to be Lord, I'm now going to give you a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new call. And so Jesus says, your new name is Peter. It literally means rock. And he says, it's on this rock. It is on you, Peter, that I'm going to build my church. And that's a big question. Like, what is it? As you read through that, you start thinking, what is it that Jesus really means whenever he talks about Jesus, when he talks about building the church on Peter and him being the rock? What, What is he getting at there? And there's traditionally been kind of a couple different questions. Is Jesus talking about Peter himself? Is he talking about Peter, the person, the apostle, the one that is leading in the early church? Is Jesus literally building the church on him, or is it something else? Is it more not so much him as the person, or is it like the confession that Peter made about who Jesus is? Which one of it, like, which, how, how are we going to answer that question? And those have sparked all sorts of debate, a lot of divide even in the church. Things like the Protestant Reformation even had their beginnings based on how people answered those questions. Now, uh, more of the traditional Roman Catholic understanding of that is that Jesus is referring directly to Peter. He is the one, the man that uh, is the kind of the beginning, the rock of the church, and it's from that, as you look through the different leaders in the Roman Catholic Church and the popes, if you go all the way to the pope today and then go back and you trace them back throughout history, they all end up at Peter. And uh, I really got a better understanding of that as a non-Roman Catholic. I got a better understanding of that whenever we had the opportunity several years back to go to Rome. And uh, whenever we went to Rome, We did all the things that you do while you're in Rome. You go to the Trevi Fountain. You go to the Spanish Steps. You go and visit all of these uh, landmarks. You go to the Colosseum and learn several different things while we were there. Had an incredible experience from the very time that we landed at the airport in Rome. We uh, had reserved a cab online, and Kim had done this. She had her credit card reserved. This is clearly pre-Uber days, and we had reserved the cab And uh, as we fly into the airport, the guy gets there to pick us up, and 
cab, is, it, it's a black BMW, okay? And so we hop in this black BMW, and this guy, no exaggeration, he drives 100 miles an hour from the airport in Rome to our, I feel like I'm embracing my inner Liam Neeson, like here I am. This is awesome, right? I'm in this black BMW. We're fu- in what lifetime did I ever think I was going to be doing this? And so we end up at, there at the hotel, and we check in, and the guy that had brought us there in the black BMW, he's clearly not leaving. This is interesting. He starts a conversation with the guy running the desk at the hotel, and they start talking about this, and there's some translation that goes on, and the guy tells us, he said, hey, um, you've not paid him yet. He's waiting for his money. I thought we got this. Oh, it reserved the cab, did not pay for the cab, and I had zero euros, and so the guy at the hotel just points, you need to go that way to find an ATM. And so I'm walking, like literally, the streets of Rome at midnight, trying to find an ATM by myself. And I finally find one. I go through my wallet, begin to take out all of my cards, all the cards that everyone's like, oh yeah, this will work everywhere. You can get your money, no problem. Nothing is working, nothing is working. I finally, I'm like, surely, this can't work. It says, Stillwater National Bank on the ATM card. And I'm like, boom, I put it in there and it worked. And that's where I got my money. So if you are in Rome in the middle of the night, the S&B card worked. And that's how I got my money. Anyway, I had a great time. Finally made our way to the Vatican City the last day. And, uh, and what everyone had said, all the transcendence, all the beauty. And we make our way finally to St. Peter's Basilica, the place where Roman Catholics believe that this is where Peter uh, died for his faith, and in remembrance of that, there are different churches, different basilicas over the years that have been built there. Many have been destroyed, and the one that you can actually go and visit today was built in the 1600s. It still exists. You can go and see it, and this is where they believe that the remains of Peter, where they can be found. And I have to admit to you that as a Midwestern, non-Roman Catholic And not having this understanding, thinking to myself, okay, this seems a little strange. Like the the whole Peter thing, it's really not about Peter, right? It's about Jesus. And I didn't quite understand that until I came back, until I heard from a Roman Catholic priest here in the United States, a man that loved Jesus deeply, a man that loved the church deeply. And he said, he said, you know what? You, you non-Roman Catholics, you characterize us as worshiping the saints, and this is a bad thing. This is what you believe. And what we really mean by this is we want to be like the saints. Whenever it comes to St. Peter and St. Paul, we, by the grace of God, we want to imitate them. This is the life that we want to live. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's true. That is like the biblical version. This is what Paul's saying whenever he says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. I want to be like Peter. I want to be like Paul because they're like Christ by the grace of God. And so Jesus' teaching to the church is we need to get this right. He is the builder. He's the builder of the church. Yet he uses people as he builds And people like in this instance, specifically Peter, whose lives, by the grace of God, are worth imitating. But it wasn't because of what Peter did on his own. It wasn't because he had a great strategy. It wasn't because he had clearly laid out plans. This was an authority that was given to him by God. 
that led him. If you look at verse 19, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is all talk of authority. This was all authority that had been given to Peter by God, and Peter was merely the one who was the steward of it. And so it's Peter and all of those people that would come after Peter that would lead in the church, and they are used by Jesus, not because of what they have done, but it's because of their own humble confession of who Jesus is. And Jesus is and always will be the builder of the church. He uses people, he puts them in the right place, and he builds his church for the glory of God. And it's that kind of church, if you look in verse 18, it's that kind of church that it says that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And death will not take down this new community, this community of called out ones, of believers. And no matter how tough things have been for the church in the past, or no matter how tough things, or no matter how, how difficult life will get for Christians, as we move into the future of the church, the church will not die. And then Peter says that Jesus is not only the builder. He would later say that he's the living stone. Literally, he's, he's the foundation of the church, one who the church, the cornerstone, is built on. First Peter 2.4 This is what Peter writes. He says, as we come to know him, a living stone, this is speaking of Jesus here, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so clearly, Jesus is and always will be the builder, the foundation, and by the grace of God, he uses Peter to to build the church. People who humbly confess Jesus as Lord. And that is Jesus' clear teaching to the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son who gave his life for the church and by your grace. You call us as your people, the called out ones, to live for you, for your kingdom, and to build the church. God, we thank you for that. And we thank you by your grace, and it's only by your grace that we can live and that we can lead in the church. God, thank you. In your name, amen. So uh, this morning, we are going to have a couple different people that we're going to have come up here and pray. Uh, Zane and Beth, if we can have their family come on up. Um, two people, Zane and Beth, that we are so grateful for. I know um, as we've been talking this morning about God calling his servants to lead in the church and to build the church, um, Zane and Beth have been so faithful to come here and, and build the church here at Sunnybrook with the leading of who God is and all that he's doing in us and all he's working in our community Um, they, uh, over the last several weeks, I know that we've sent out an email about this, but over the last several weeks, they've been thinking about God's direction for their life and uh, how God is going to use them in the future to build a church called Hope City Church. And so you guys will be leaving very soon to, to go be a part of that community 
and to go build the church. And one of the things that I've been so grateful for, and we talked about the Zane, was I remember you saying to me, I want to take everything that I have learned at Sunnybrook, and I want to help another church. And so we're thankful for that, guys. We're so thankful for you. Um, Paul's going to lead us in prayer and uh, also share a little bit about something that we're going to be doing for them today. You bet. It's a privilege of mine to be able to pray for this family that has went from two to four in the five years that they've been here. I'm going to ask some of the elders to come up if you're in this service to come up and help pray over them. And then if you feel led to come up and pray for them, we'd love for you to come as well as we send them off because this is what we're doing. This is a part of who we are as the body of Christ. We believe in the the, the, the universal church, and there's a part of that church is, uh, in this community and other churches that are meeting right now, and there are those in other states and around the world. And so this is an awesome opportunity to pray over them, to send them off. I, I had the privilege of meeting Zane while he was in college. He was a good friend of my son's, uh, and then later they actually, he and a bunch of guys came down to our, and spent the weekend at our house. We had a great time getting to know him. Later, I uh, was at an event where I was meeting with people who were in youth ministry, and he was in youth ministry in Colorado, and they were at this event, and his fiance at the time, Beth, came up, and we were just talking about them getting married. He wanted me to meet her, and just processing ministry and those kinds of things. Little did we know uh, that we'd cross paths when we were at Camp Sayokomo together, and then Drew, in the process of looking for someone to be, to be a part of our family ministry team to do children's ministry, uh, had, hey, what do you think about Zane? I said, man, I said, everything I'm hearing about it at camp and everything I know about him is he is, has a heart of service and, and uh, convincing him about thinking about doing just children's ministry uh, and then us reaping the benefits of that for the last five years uh, with our families and, and our children and just a part of our family ministry team is amazing. It's an amazing thing. Uh, I would say this, we are saddened, as many of you are. We're sad to see them go. But that only points to the impact that they've had. Uh, the love for this community, and not just this church, but the city, the school, uh, their love for, for you as parents and trying to speak to you to how to, how to be godly men and women to, to raise kids and be that example, and, and the calling, the, the sadness, but it's also the joy and excitement of, of a new adventure and a new chapter. And so with that, we're going to pray over them, uh, and let's all pray together as we send them off. Father God in heaven, we are so grateful for uh, your story and each one of us in this room uh, as we reflect on the story of your work in our lives. Uh, we are intertwined with people um, that we call brothers and sisters in so many different ways. And Father, we're grateful for, uh, on behalf of this church, just the, the calling of Zane and Beth uh, to, to Stillwater and to this church. And Father, the five years that you have blessed us to be to work together uh, to be a part of our church family. And so, Father, as family goes, it is hard to say goodbye to family. Uh, but in, in reality, as believers, Father, we never say goodbye. And so we're grateful for that. And, Father, I pray uh, your spirit would continue to lead and guide them as, as a mom and dad, as a husband and wife, and as pastors to your kingdom, Father, and to your church. Father, use them in a mighty way in Joplin, at Hope City, and, and Father, I pray that you would bless the ministry there as you will bless us, Father. We're, we're reminded over and over, even as we walk in these doors, how much you have blessed us. So we're grateful to you, God, and your spirit now works in us.